Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Children, if you're in preschool and you're below that, you may leave now to go to kids' worship. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I'm going to mention a name that probably nobody in this room has ever heard of. How many of you have ever heard of a man named Kirk Bloodsworth? If you know who Kirk Bloodsworth is, I want to come and talk to you after the service. Most of you probably don't know who he is. He was an honorably discharged Marine who in 1985 was convicted of murder and rape of a nine-year-old girl. Now, he maintained that he was innocent of this crime. And yet, he was convicted of this crime. He went to prison. He was on death row twice, serving a life prison sentence. And in 1992, he began to hear of this new type of technology called DNA testing. We take for granted DNA testing today, but that was the early stages of DNA testing. And he'd heard about DNA testing, and he thought that he would appeal his case to the judge to see if they could reopen his case with this new DNA testing. So, thankfully, the judge ordered a DNA test from evidence that was thought to be destroyed, but it was actually found in a paper bag in the judge's chambers. The test came back conclusive, DNA test, that Bloodsworth was in fact innocent of the crime that he had committed. He was released in 1993 after serving nine years in prison, twice on death row. Finally, in 2003, he was exonerated when the real killer a man named Kim Ruffner, was linked to the crime. Back in 1984, a year before this perpetrated crime, he had been sentenced to 45 years for burglary, rape, and attempted murder. Ironically, he was in the cell one floor lower than Bloodsworth in prison. In 2004, Ruffner pleaded guilty to the murder in 1984. Now, to me, that would be devastating if you were Kirk Bloodsworth. To serve a life sentence on death row for a crime that you know that you did not commit. And then to add poetic justice to it, the guy that actually committed the crime is in the cell below you in the same prison, knowing all along that he was the one that committed the crime. Now, think about this. What if this would have been 20 years or 50 years earlier before DNA testing? Would justice have been served? Would there have been justice for this man? There was probably no greater feeling of freedom and release than when Bloodsworth heard the test results from the DNA, you're not guilty. And even probably a greater sense of freedom when he heard that the other man, Kim Ruffner, confessed to the crime. He put it to bed once and for all. Now, none of us has probably ever here been on death row 
None of us have probably ever faced a life sentence in prison. But you can imagine what it would be like to hear those words from the judge. Those powerful, penetrating words from the judge, not guilty. You're free to go. There's no condemnation. I pronounce you free to go. And yet, if we understand our Bibles, every single one of us in this room is on spiritual death row, and we are under a sentence of guilt and condemnation unless God does something. Unless God in his sovereignty pronounces us to be not guilty. If God gives us a not guilty verdict. So one of the most important questions that we can ask Every single one of us in this room, every single human being on this planet, and they may not be thinking about it, but the most important question that any of us can ask is simply this. How can a holy and righteous God accept and forgive sinners as not guilty in his sight? How can the God of the universe who's holy and just look down upon sinners and pronounce us as not guilty? as righteous, as free, as accepted, as forgiven. And we know what the answer is, don't we? We've sung about it. The answer is that it only comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. It's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so the glorious truth, the glorious answer to this is this. Sinners are accepted as not guilty through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the main point of my message this morning. But it's the gospel. It is the driving message that drives this church. It's the driving message of Christ. It is the fact that sinners like you and me can be accepted as not guilty through faith alone in Christ alone. It's amazing news that it comes by faith. It comes by faith. The moment that you and I place our entire faith in Christ alone for salvation, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. They're taken away, and we are permanently accepted into God's family, and it comes by faith. We can't earn it. We can't do enough good to deserve it. We can't somehow work for it. We can't hope that at the end of our lives, our good deeds have outweighed our bad deeds on the proverbial scale. And because our good deeds are better than our bad deeds, somehow God is obligated, because we've been so good, to let us into heaven. That's not the way it works. It's a free gift of grace by faith alone in Christ alone. And if it were not a free gift, there would be room to boast, to brag, to get to heaven and say, look what we've accomplished, look what I've done, look what I've produced, look what I've earned. We cannot do that. It's a free gift of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Now you may ask, what in the world does this have to do with Genesis chapter 15? It has everything to do with Genesis chapter 15. Now let's just take a recap from last week. If you remember what happened, these invading kings came in and they took Lot... Abraham's nephew, captive. And we saw Abraham rose as this courageous leader. He was a godly man who took charge and he rescued Lot out of the clutches of those kings. And then we had this guy, Melchizedek, this priest, the king of Salem, come and he blesses 
Abraham, and then Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of everything. And yes, last week we talked about tithing. I won't talk about it again this week. But I will say this, I want to challenge you to take the 90-day tithing challenge that I issued last week to, to tithe for the next 90 days and just see what God does in your life. This was a dangerous and stressful time for Abraham. Think about it. If you're Abraham and these kings came and invaded your land, you'd be thinking, are they going to come back? Is this going to happen again next year? Remember what he's been promised. What's Abraham been promised? He's been promised a child, and he's been promised a land. Does he have either one of these yet? He has no child. He has no land. As a matter of fact, his wife is barren. They're getting up in years, and there's pagans in the land. And so Abraham is faced with probably the most fundamental question that he can ask. Will Abraham actually believe God? Will Abraham put all of his trust and confidence in this God who has promised these things to him? Because if you're Abraham, you're not seeing it. You're not seeing the child. You're not seeing the land. All you're seeing is this chaos surrounding you. And you have to ask the question, will I believe in this God if you're Abraham? So what I want to do is I want to show us three things this morning from this text and also going into the book of Romans that relate to trust, faith, confidence in Christ alone. Now this chapter is nicely divided into two sections. Verses 1 through 6, we see Abraham's concern about not having a son and how God deals with that. In verses 7 through 21, we see Abraham's concern with not having land and God addresses that. So how is God going to answer the problem of not having a son and not having land. Well, let's read together and find out. So if you've got your Bible, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, these things, these kings coming, invading, Melchizedek coming, all the things that we saw in in chapter 14. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here's the first issue for this morning that we see in verses 1 through 6. The sovereign God is our shield and our protector. Notice the first words that come out of the Lord's mouth to Abraham in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not. Fear not. We often hear that in the scriptures. Abraham, don't fear. Don't fear these kings. Don't fear the fact that you don't have any children. Don't fear the fact that you don't have the land and these pagan nations are in there. Do not fear. Why? Why is Abraham not to fear? Well, God gives him the reason. 
For not, Abraham, I am your shield. I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I'm your strong tower. I'm your refuge. I'm your solid rock, Abraham. I am your shield. Psalm 3, verse 3 says this, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. You are a shield about me. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Are you worshiping Christ this morning as your shield? I think we can really relate to Abraham. That's one of the reasons I love the Bible is you can relate to these characters. And you're probably thinking like Abraham, I've got a lot of questions, God. I've got a lot of fears because you've promised me a child and I'm childless. You've promised me the land and I have no land. Maybe, God, I've misunderstood you. Can I really trust you? And there may be some of you that have come into this room this morning and you've got some fears, some legitimate fears. Maybe some of you are fearing the future. Maybe some of you are fearing a relationship whether it's with your children or whether it's with a spouse or another family member or a friend, you're fearing a relationship. Maybe some of you are fearing a situation at work or some of you are fearing a situation in the future, your finances. And you're thinking to yourself, I am overwhelmed in fear by these things facing me and can I really trust in God? I mean, my friends are talking about trusting in God, and Pastor Sean talks about trusting in God, and I know the Bible says I should trust in God, but when the rubber meets the road, do I really, personally, trust in God? And you may be thinking, I just want to throw in the towel. It's not worth it following Jesus. I can't handle it anymore. I am filled with fear. What you need to hear this morning is the good news of the gospel, that God is your shield. He's your tower. He's your strong refuge that you can run into and be safe. doesn't mean your situation may get better, but it means that God is there for you as your shield. He's got you in the palm of his hand, and no one can snatch you out of it. Have you ever heard of Gladys Elward? If you've not heard of Gladys Elward, you need to hear of Gladys Elward. In the early 20th century, She was a single woman who served in China as a missionary. And she was called the the small woman or the little woman. And she would actually work for the Chinese government and she would go from village to village to make sure that the Chinese people were not practicing foot binding. Foot binding was illegal for the little Chinese girls back during that time. And sometimes she would get roughed up as she would go to these villages. And then in 1938, in her area, in her village the Japanese forces came in and, and invaded. Now, she became kind of a surrogate mother to a lot of orphans. She, she had about 100 kids that she called her own that were orphans. And she got wounded in this battle, and she made the decision by herself as a single woman, the only adult, to transport 100 orphan children through the mountains to escape the Japanese forces. And she did it with God's help. They were malnourished, they were, they were tattered clothing. They didn't have food. But somehow, by God's strength and by God's grace, 
Gladys Alward was able to trust in the Lord as her shield and get these 100 orphans to safety as the only. I can't imagine getting five children as one. Some of you have large families. I've got two, and that's enough. Sometimes you're driving in the car. A hundred kids. You're the only adult. And you're, this is before GPS. Are we there yet? Times a hundred. You have to trust in God as your shield and your fortress. In 1957, Alan Burgess wrote a book about her called The Small Woman. It was made into a movie called The End of the Sixth Happiness, starring Ingrid Bergman. God was her shield. And God is your shield this morning. But not only does God promise to be a shield, but notice what he says to Abraham. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham, I'm going to answer the question about your child. You are going to have a great reward. I'm going to bless you with children. Remember, back in chapter 12, God made that covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. But Abraham wants to see it. Abraham wants some tangible proof. Because he's saying to himself, I have no heir. This guy, Eleazar of Damascus, he's my only heir. God, this isn't going to work. Sarah's getting up in age. Uh, This is not going to happen, God. You've got to show me. Show me the money, God. Show me the promise. And what does God do? Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eleazar of Damascus, the servant of yours, he's not going to be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. So God takes Abraham out and says, Look up at the starry sky. And as you begin to count those stars... That's how many of your offspring they're going to be. Now, astronomers tell us that on a good, clear night, where there's no pollution, that the human naked eye can possibly see up to 6,000 stars. 6,000 stars. Now, astronomers also estimate that there are 100,000 million stars just in the Milky Way. Outside of that, there are millions and millions of other galaxies. So I don't think God's point here to Abraham was to start counting it. Because after about, a what, a thousand, you'd probably get kind of bored. I think the point that God is making to Abraham is this is a visual image that you're going to have numerous offspring. Abraham, you're going to be a father of a great nation, the Israelites, but not just the, na- the great nation. All believers in Jesus Christ from all of the ages are going to be your offspring, Abraham. You're going to be the father of faith. It was the people of God. It's interesting what John the Apostle sees when he goes up to heaven in Revelation in that vision. In John 7, 9 through 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count, no one could number, where? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's none other than the offspring, that countless multitude of stars. You are among that number if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 6 is the most important verse in this chapter and maybe one of the most important verses in Genesis. It's quoted extensively by Paul and James. He believed the Lord. In the original text, in that Hebrew text there, believed is a very strong word. It means Abraham strongly believed. He put all of his confidence in God. And what happened? The moment that he believed in the Lord, what does it say? He counted to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. Notice that Abraham is not asked to do anything. 
God doesn't require Abraham to somehow make this blessing happen. He doesn't say, Abraham, go out and figure it out. Go out and try to work things out on your own power. Try to do all this stuff. No, Abraham is helpless. He can't produce this amazing amount of descendants. He's passive. He's totally dependent upon God. What's the one thing that Abraham can do? What is the only thing Abraham can do? Believe. God has given a promise. I can't control it. I don't have the resources to do it. It's out of my hands. The only thing I can do is believe. And God says the moment Abraham did that, it was counted to him as righteousness. God has accepted Abraham. Now we're going to talk about that in a few moments, so hold that thought. Verses 1 through 6, God addresses the issue of the son. Abraham, you're going to have a son, and not just one son. Your very own son's going to be your offspring, but it's going to be as countless as the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed the Lord. Now we get to verses 7 through the end of the chapter, through verses 21, and God is going to deal with the land. Okay, we got the son part worked out. I'm going to have a son, but what about the land? And here's how God answers it. God cuts a binding covenant in blood with Abraham. So here's the second issue for this morning. The sovereign God is absolutely true to his covenant promises. Let's see this unfold where God is absolutely true to his covenant promises. Let's pick up in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, Abraham wants proof. He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Not the Parasites. They're not in that list. God earlier said to Abraham, I'm your shield. Now he says to Abraham, I'm your Lord. As a matter of fact, Abram, I plucked you out of pagan moon worshiping in Ur of the Chaldeans, and I showed you sovereign grace, and I've been your protector, and I've blessed you. And God says to him, I'm your Lord. And Abraham still has a little bit of trouble understanding all this, and he says, I need to see it, God. How am I going to get this land? 
What's going to happen for me to possess the land? Because after all, these four kings from the east just came and invaded the land, and they took my nephew off. And then down there earlier, we listed ten nations of these ite nations. And God says, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to go get some animals, and I want you to cut these animals in half, and I want you to put a space between these two animals and have the animals facing each other. So, so cut them in half and then put a space between them and have the two dead animals facing each other. Now, this was before the sacrificial system during Moses, but these animals were used later in the sacrificial system. But it's always been, from the beginning, God doing things through blood, the blood of the covenant. All the way back to Adam and Eve when he clothed them with animal skins when he killed the animal back in Genesis chapter Three. So Abraham cuts these animals in half, puts a space between them, lays them facing each other, and then a dreadful darkness falls upon Abram and he goes to sleep. And this dreadful darkness is, is an ominous foreboding of what's going to happen in the future. And God comes to Abraham in this dream and gives him a prophecy about the Exodus. I mean, we've got the Exodus right here. Your people, the Israelites, are going to be in captivity for 400 years. They're going to be slaves there. They're going to be afflicted there. They're going to be there for 400 years. After the 400 years, they're going to come out with great possessions. And we go back and we read Exodus and we find out, sure enough, it was around 400 years. They were in captivity. Moses says, let my people go. They go through the Red Sea. They plunder the Egyptians. It all comes true. This is a prophecy right here to Abraham. And God says to him, for you personally, Abraham, you're going to die in a good old age. You're going to die in peace. But the iniquity of the Amorites has got to be fulfilled. All these nations are there in the land. And we know if you read the the book of Joshua, Joshua goes in and and has to conquer all these ites. If you go to Joshua, you find out there are all these ites, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites. Those are all the the, the nations that are in the land. And so so here's what God does. God gives Abraham a, a prophecy that we know comes true historically. So that shows us the trustworthiness of the Bible. But then, in verses 17 through 18, we've got this weird experience. The sun goes down. It's dark. Abraham's in a deep sleep, and he's cut these animals, and there's a space between the animals, and behold, what shows up? A flaming torch and a smoking pot just kind of go between these two animals. That's a symbol of God's holy presence. God has always shown up in fire when he's appeared to his people. How did he show show up to Moses in the burning bush? In fire. The nation of Israel, a pillar of smoke, the pillar of fire. And God comes in fire between these two pieces of dead animals. And the scripture there in verse 18 says, on that day the Lord cut a covenant, literally cut a covenant with Abraham. And let me explain to you what's going on, because this is profound if you don't understand what's going on. Let me explain it to you. In that culture, when two parties came together to make a covenant, to make an agreement, what they would do is they would do the ceremony. One side would cut one half of the animals. The other side would cut the other half of the animals. They would shake on it. And basically they would say this, 
I promise to fulfill my end of the agreement. If I fail to, to fulfill my end of the agreement, may what these animals, what happened to these animals come upon me. In other words, may I be dead like these animals. May the curses of these dead animals come upon me if I don't keep my end of the bargain. And then the other guy would say, okay, the same thing. If I don't keep up my end of the bargain, may these dead animals come upon me, may I be cursed. And so both parties would agree that if they didn't fulfill their end of the, of the agreement, they would be like these dead animals. But here's the issue. Who passes through? God passes through. God keeps both ends of the covenant. Because here's what happens. Is Abraham ever going to be able to live up to his end of the covenant? If you keep reading, you find out Abraham makes some more sin. And, 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 and are we sinners today? What God is saying is this. Abraham, if for some reason you and your offspring fail to fulfill your end of the covenant, may I be like those dead animals. God is calling a curse upon himself. Now the amazing thing about that is we know that God won't fail. God's not going to somehow not give his end of the bargain. God cannot fail. And here's the issue. What is he requiring Abraham to do? The only thing Abraham did was to sacrifice. But do you realize what's going on here? What is Abraham doing during this time? He's asleep. He is totally dependent upon God. He's childless. He's landless. And he's asleep. And God comes to him in sovereign grace and says, I'm cutting a covenant in blood. And if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, Abraham, because of your failure, may I be like these dead animals. I'm putting it all on my shoulders. He's paying the price in blood. God is saying, I'm paying the price in blood myself if you fail to keep your end of the agreement. Ray Vanderland, if you've ever watched the Focus on the Family that the world may know series where he travels to the Holy Land and does a lot of these videos, he says this, at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. God passing through the two cut pieces himself as a flaming torch is a picture of the cross. That God is going to require a death if you don't keep up your end of the agreement. And the problem is none of us can keep up our end of the agreement because we're all sinners. So God himself says, I'm going to keep both ends of the agreement. And as a matter of fact, there's going to be a death in blood. It's going to be the death of my son. Because you can't earn it, you can't work for it. The only thing you can do, sinner, is what Abraham did. And what did Abraham do? Believe. All you can do is trust. Place all of your confidence in the God who's done all the work. And so here's the third issue this morning. God declares us righteous only by faith in Christ alone. Verse 6, let's read it again. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God was able to declare Abraham righteous solely on the exercise of faith. 
And so the question we've got to ask is, if that happened to Abraham simply by believing in Christ and the sacrifice and what God had promised, what does that mean for us? What do we have to do? Is it any different for us? And the answer is no. It's no different for us. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans for just a moment, if you will. Romans chapter 3. Probably, Romans 3 and 4 are probably the most important, I keep saying that, the most important part of the Bible. All the Bible is important. But there are some parts of it that are really, really important. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And what Paul does in Romans chapter 3, he's going to explain to us the problem. And then he's going to explain to us the answer to the problem. And then he's going to use Abraham as an example of the problem. So Paul is going to bring in this Genesis 15 story right here in Romans chapter 3 and 4. And I want you to see how it applies to us. So let's pick up in Romans chapter 3. And what I want you to do is Paul has four main points that he's going through here. And we're going to go through these briefly because I think that they're, they're pretty self-explanatory. But, but let's just read verses 9 through 19. Here's Paul's first main point in verses 9 through 13. We are all guilty under God's judgment, and we desperately need righteousness to be accepted by God. That's the point. We are all guilty under God's judgment, and we desperately need righteousness to be accepted by God. Let's read that. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin... As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul's point here is every single one of us is guilty and under judgment and we desperately need this righteousness of Christ to be accepted by God. There's no fear of God. No one seeks God. No, not one. We're all worthless. No one is righteousness. We're all held accountable under this condemnation by our sin. That's Paul's first point. And then he goes a little step further. Verses 20 through 23. Here's his second point. Being a good person or obeying the Ten Commandments will not produce this righteousness that's required to be accepted by God. Because you may be thinking, okay, if I'm not righteous, there's something I must do to make myself righteous, so maybe I'll be a good person. Maybe I'll try harder. Maybe I'll be spiritual. Maybe I'll get confirmed. Maybe I'll get baptized. Maybe I'll do good works. Maybe I'll be spiritual. Maybe I'll follow Oprah. Maybe I'll do this or that. Maybe I'll do all these things to somehow get myself righteous. And Paul says it's not going to work. Look at verses 20 through 23. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's second point, his first point, we're all sinners. We're all condemned. We can't produce this righteousness. Second point, you can't produce this righteousness by trying to be a good person. Nobody can produce this by trying to be good, do good enough, earn it, go to church enough, obey the Ten Commandments enough, obey the Golden Rule enough. You cannot do it. But then he gets to the good news. Here's his third point. The only way to get this righteousness, to make us accepted by God, is to believe in Christ and his cross. What Christ has done for us to produce the righteousness in his cross. This comes in verses 24 through 26. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. By faith. What God has done in sending Jesus to die on the cross to take God's wrath, as we sang earlier, must be received by faith as a free gift. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Over and over again, Paul says the only way you can be declared righteous, you can be declared accepted, you can be forgiven by Christ is to believe. To be like Abraham and trust wholeheartedly in Christ and what he has done on the cross to make a way for us to be accepted. And here's Paul's fourth point. If we could somehow be good enough or be accepted by being good enough or obeying the Ten Commandments, then we could boast that we somehow earned it or deserved it. If if, if it was up to us and what we did, we'd have room to boast. Look what he says in verses 27 through 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I've given this illustration time and time again, but it bears giving again because we need it beat into our heads. This is what it means to be accepted by God. Picture your life as a bank account. And picture Jesus' life as a bank account. You guys are familiar with banking. Debits and credits and transfers and credits and and negative balances. You ever had overdrawn on on your debit account? Here's the issue. When the God of the universe looks down upon our lives without Christ, when he looks at your life as a bank account, he sees a balance of negative millions and billions of dollars of sin. You are in major debt because of your sin, and there's no way you can get yourself out of debt. There's no way you can produce that. So what you do is you believe in Jesus. The moment you believe in Jesus... Your debt, your millions and billions of dollars of debt is taken out of your account and it's placed in Jesus' account because he took it on the cross. That's beautiful. You are no longer in debt. But that's only halfway. To not be in debt is good, but you're at zero balance. You need a positive balance to, to, have, to be in God's good graces. The thing is, you can't create this positive balance. You can't do it. The other beautiful thing happens is when you believe in Jesus... His perfect record of righteousness is credited to your account so that when the God of the universe looks down upon your life, he can pronounce you not guilty based upon Christ. So it's a double transaction. All your sin goes to Jesus and all of his righteousness goes to you and therefore God can look down and say not guilty. 
Now, Paul illustrates this with Abraham. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And verses 4 and 5 are crucial. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here's Paul's point in verse 4. If you work, you get paid because you worked. How many of you would, would do this? You, you've worked a 50-hour week, maybe a 60-hour week. You've slaved over your job. You've had to deal with all the crazy people and the issues at your job. And you've just worked like a dog all week. And it's the end of the week, and you go to your boss and say, you know what? I really don't want to get a paycheck this week because I'm, I'm feeling real generous. How many of us would volunteer for that? We are hardwired to what? Get what's coming to us. If I work, it better come to me. If I put in overtime, it better come to me. I work, therefore I get paid. I put out effort, I reap the benefit. That's how we're hardwired, but that is not the way the gospel works. The gospel is just the opposite of that. The Bible says it's not to the one who works, but to the one who trusts. That faith is counted to him as righteousness. But see, here's the problem. We all think that we need to somehow work for our salvation. If I could just do a little bit more, God would accept me. If I just go to church more, if I just give my tithes and offerings more, if I just grow up being a good person, if I obey the golden rule more, if I try really hard to do the Ten Commandments, if I do, 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 God may accept me. Are you frustrated and exhausted by now? It's not what we can do, do, do. It's what Christ, some of you are laughing. That's okay. I I realize now why you're laughing. Um, It's not what we can do. It's what Christ has done for us in his cross. In the moment that you trust in Jesus, you're counted righteous. You're accepted. In Newsflash, Even the faith that you have to believe in Jesus is not your own faith. It's given as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now go down to the end of the chapter. Paul brings his conclusion to the end. and says, all this stuff happened to Abraham, but it can become true for you. And for me, look at verse 20 at the end of Romans chapter 4. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The moment that we believe, the moment that we place all of our trust 
in Christ alone. Not in ourselves, not in our good works, not in what we can do. Simple trust. The Bible says at that moment, all your sins are forgiven. You are perfectly accepted by God. You are given permission to enter into his family. You're adopted into God's family. You have the joy of eternal life. It comes by faith alone. So let me just give you a warning this morning. Without this faith and without Christ, you are like Kirk Bloodsworth that we talked about at the beginning of the message. You're on spiritual death row this morning. You're facing an eternity without Christ. And no matter how hard you plead for a DNA test or blame somebody else that may have done it, it's always going to come back guilty, guilty, guilty because of your sin. And if you were to die in your sin as one who's under God's condemnation, the Bible says it's very clear. Your fate, your destiny is a place called hell, eternal conscious torment. And you're helpless to get yourself out. You're on spiritual death row and you cannot get yourself out. You cannot plead innocence. There's nothing you can do. The one thing you can do is the same thing Abraham did. The same thing that those in this room have done. And that is trust in Jesus. Alone. As the only one to save you. And the moment you do that, the moment that you place your trust in Jesus, something amazing happens. You hear the words from the judge. Forgiven. Not guilty. Free. Accepted. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is the only all-sufficient Savior that stands ready to welcome all who would come to him, who are broken, who are repenting, and who beg for mercy. He will never turn away anyone who comes to him in brokenness and repentance. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Believe in me and you will be freed. So this morning, would you believe in Jesus to escape spiritual death row so that you can hear the words of the judge say, not guilty once and for all you're welcomed into my family enjoy your freedom now and forever with king jesus my prayer i've been praying this all week if you're here this morning and you've never done that you've never you've been trusting in yourself you've been trusting in other things but you've never trusted in christ alone The Bible says, don't harden your heart today. Today is the day of salvation. Would you put all of your trust in Jesus as the one to save you? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. There may be some of you this morning that you know you're on spiritual death row. And no matter how much evidence you try to bring forth to the judge to prove your innocence, it's going to fall on deaf ears because you know deep in your heart that you've rebelled against a holy God. 
and somehow you've been fooled into thinking that if you were just a good person or you just went to church enough or you just did, did all these things that maybe, just maybe you cross your fingers and, and hope that God would forgive you. But you've heard a message this morning that that's not how it works. And you're accountable for what you've heard this morning. So would you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you and accept the free gift of salvation that comes only by faith? Would you believe the Lord and have it credited to you as righteousness? For the rest of you here this morning that have already done that, would you never grow cold of the fact that you've been accepted by Almighty God? He did not have to accept you, but he chose to do it through sending Jesus Christ, his only son, to die and rise again. And would you spend this time just in worship praising God that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you and all your sins have been credited to him and you stand accepted and not guilty and righteous before the king and he loves you and accepts you. Whatever you need to do this morning to get right with God, would you spend time in the quietness of this moment praying? Father, only you can look into hearts this morning. I cannot. But I can't help but imagine that there are many in this room who need to be saved. And maybe they've played a game for far too many years. And maybe they've tried to pretend for their spouse. And they've put on a good charade so that nobody would know deep in their heart that they are truly not a believer. And they may mask it with good works, and they may mask it by church attendance, and they may mask it by trying to be a morally good person. But Father, that's not what gets us accepted by you. It's trust in Christ alone. So would this morning there be many that would trust in Christ alone for salvation. And for the rest of us, Father, would we experience the joy of our salvation afresh this morning. May we be encouraged that you're our shield and our, our reward and that you are mighty to save as we sang earlier. That no one can snatch us out of your hand. That you are a strong tower. We can run into it and be, be safe. Lord, we can trust you. You are trustworthy. And a crumbling and, sh- and shaky world, Lord, you are unshakable and your kingdom never crumbles. You're the solid rock. May we live in the truth of that this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.